0: Well, the markets are still reacting to, you know, what really shocked most people on Wall Street. I spoke about it yesterday. Uh, I'll talk about it a little bit more today with Janet Yellen, the Fed finally removing the word patience from its statement. And, you know, everybody uh, had been factoring in a, a rate hike and the first step in the process was the removal of the word patience, because the Fed had basically said, look, this is our roadblock to rate hikes. Until we remove it, we can't raise rates. And everybody expected them to remove the road back and then, you know, paving the way, clearing the way rather for a rate hike, maybe as soon as June. And so this is what everybody was uh, preparing for. Although I don't believe the stock market had fully discounted that in. Certainly the foreign exchange markets had more than discounted that in. But as I said uh, on Wednesday, yes, Janet Yellen did remove the word patience because everybody thought she was going to. And so she didn't want to disappoint anybody. She didn't want to, uh, you know, show her cards just yet. So she removed the word patient, but she reinserted it by saying, look, even though the word's not there, we're going to be just as patient as we were when the word was there. Because just because we're not patient, it doesn't mean we're impatient. So what the hell are they? Well, the one thing we know they're not going to do is raise rates. And in fact, Yellen did say that she's not going to raise rates unless the labor market continues to improve, which likely it will not. But even if it does improve, it won't be enough for the Fed because no matter what happens, she can't raise rates because whatever the improvement will go away with the rate hikes because it's all an illusion. It's all a bubble and you can't take the air out of the bubble and expect it to keep on expanding. Right. It, it, it deflates. And in fact, that process has already begun. And I think it's very likely that we're going to start to see uh, some weaker non far payroll numbers. We're likely to see the unemployment rate notching up which means those rate hike fantasies are going to be pushed off further and further into the future until they're ultimately obscured by the reality of QE4. And who knows, You know, maybe they won't call it QE4, uh, but we know they're going to do it regardless of what they call it. So the market, stock markets are rallying, uh, the Dow Jones uh, nearing a record, if not uh, up substantially on the day Back over 18,000 now in the Dow, up 168 points on the day. Strong week. NASDAQ powering back above 5,000, not quite a record close at 5,026. The bigger movers were in the foreign exchange market where you saw huge swings. On that Wednesday afternoon, uh, the dollar tanked late in the day. It was almost like a flash crash at some point. I mean, the dollar, they really hammered it. And then Thursday, it gained back almost everything that it lost. And then today it lost back almost everything it gained and settled near the Wednesday lows. So you basically have some currencies uh, that closed Friday, you know, three to four percent higher than their Wednesday lows. I think the star of the week or the rock star was the Norwegian Krona, which I think made a five percent move uh, during those two days uh, because Norway didn't cut rates on Thursday uh, like everybody thought they would. So it got an added boost uh, by that. But this was a lot of volatility. This is, I think, the biggest down week in the dollar uh, in years, uh, and consequently, it's the biggest up week in foreign stock markets in a couple of years as well. Because not only did these foreign stock markets enjoy their gains in local currencies, but they got a three to four to five percent added boost. Uh, from the foreign exchange effects. Now, of course, the big rise that we had in the foreign exchange markets this week does not offset the huge drop that we had in the last six to nine months. But remember, the entire rise of the dollar during that time frame was predicated on the Fed raising rates, and they just took that off the table. You know, Now, you know, the Fed didn't actually uh, come out and say we're not going to raise rates. I mean, Janet Yellen did go out of her way to say that it was possible that that she would raise rates. Yeah, I mean, sure, it's possible. I mean, anything is possible, right? Right, an alien invasion is possible. Uh, a zombie apocalypse, well, that's possible too, right? But I'm not preparing for one. I don't think either of those events uh, are too probable, uh, although they may be more likely than Yellen raising rates, at least raising rates before she does QE4. I think QE4 comes before the next rate hike. And the next rate hike is not because the Fed wants to hike rates, right? It's because the Fed has no choice because it's game over. Because inflation is running out of control, it's so far above its 2% level because the dollar's in free fall that they have nothing else to do, and then it's all going to hit the fan. And then we're going to have to experience uh, the consequences of what we've done. And, you know, what's really amazing to me, I did did a lot of television um, the other day, and a lot of the clips, you can see them on my YouTube channel. Uh, ones that are not there are the ones that I did at Yahoo Finance. And so I think we, we linked them on my Facebook page. By the way, you know, if you haven't friended me on Facebook or, you know, liked me or whatever it is, or follow me on Twitter, you know, make sure and, you know, uh, sign up for all my social media uh, outlets. But, you know, I went down to Yahoo Finance and, you know, because I went on Aaron t- Task is a nice guy, but. You know, the last time he, he mentioned me, he, you know, he talked about gold and he he basically referred to me as a, as a snake oil salesman, which he later apologized. I don't know why he would you know call that because, you know, selling snake oil means you don't believe in what you're doing. Right. He was criticizing me for having recommended gold all these years. And look, it's gone down. So he likened me to a snake oil salesman. But, you know. I, I, you know, Snake, that means I would I, I thought gold was going to go down, but I, I was just telling people it was going to go up anyway. And that that's not the case. I, I think people should own gold. And I have thought that for a long time. Uh, but a lot of people, you know, don't go back, you know, 15 years. They just go back two or three because it's a more convenient time frame if you want to discredit the recommendation. But still, gold's, you know, just under twelve hundred. And I started recommending it when it was under 300. So it's still a pretty good uh, track record. Uh, You know, you've got people who have been negative on gold the entire way up. And they're the stop clocks who, you know, are finally are right, but they won't be right much longer. But anyway, the reason I bring this up, you know, I did the interviews uh, uh, with Yahoo Finance talking about the Fed, talking about the dollar markets. And, you know, then you go and you can read the comments. On the Yahoo website because there are hundreds of people commenting, and this is probably you know the mainstream uh, guy you know that's just uh, watching Yahoo Finance and almost all the comments about me are negative. I mean they're not just negative; they're they're just harsh. They're, you know, this guy's a fraud. This guy's a con man. He's an idiot. He's a moron. You know, why does Yahoo even have him on? He's never gotten anything right in his life. He's a broken clock. He's lost all his money. I mean, one negative thing after another. I mean, like, you know, I mean, where are these guys coming from? I mean, you know, here's the, the funny thing about it. And a lot of people have this attitude, right? I, I'm out there uh, in 2005, 2006, 2007, you know, doing all sorts of television shows, CNBC, Fox News, CNN, I'm I'm on all these shows warning about the housing bubble, talking about all the problems that are being obscured by this bubble, and, and warning about the financial crisis that's looming on the horizon. And nobody listens to me. Everybody's laughing at me. And then all of a sudden, everything I'm warning about happens, right? And for a brief moment in time, hey, yeah, Peter Schiff called it, right? I got a little bit of respect. People are talking about it and how short people's memories are. Because it's not that many years into the future, right? And all those old YouTube videos, they're still up there, right? People can see that Peter Schiff was right, even though the original video is no longer up there, which had about over 2 million views. For some reason, that one got taken down. But there are copies out there that, that people can watch. But now everybody, everybody all of a sudden forgets all about that. You know, they'll say, oh, Peter, you've been saying the sky is falling for years, and it, nothing bad has happened. Excuse me? Nothing bad happened? Uh, What about 2008? Wasn't that bad? I mean, they said that was the worst financial disaster since the Great Depression. And had they not done the bailouts and the QE, it would have been worse than the Great Depression. Doesn't that count as the sky kind of fallen a little bit? Right. And imagine what would have happened had we not made all the mistakes to cover it up, to make the problems bigger, which brings me to my point. Right. All of the people who thought there were no problems in 2005 and 2006, thought that rising real estate prices were a good thing, including Janet Yellen, right? She was among the cheerleaders of the bubble economy who didn't know it was a bubble. So all the experts and all the people in power who uh, said everything was great, right? That were, you know, either not those, Janet Yellen wasn't laughing at me because she didn't know who I was. But I mean, Ben Bernanke, I think, you know, people questioned him and said, hey, some people are worried about a housing bubble, you know, meaning me, you know, without and and Ben, oh, no, there's no bubble. I don't buy that premise. You know, I don't think housing prices are going to go down. So all the people that were supposedly so smart, right, couldn't see the problem. I'm saying, here's the problem. Here's the problem. And then exactly what I say is going to happen, happens. Now, five years later, right, all the people who said there was no problem, there was nothing to worry about, right, in 2006 and 2007, everything was great. All those people are now saying, well, the problem was solved and everything is great again. And here I am, right? The one guy or one of the few guys that understood the problem who's saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. The problem wasn't solved. The problem was actually made worse by the very policies that you use to solve it. Or maybe better to cover it up. Right now, why are is nobody believing me? Since I knew what the problem was in advance, it makes sense that I would understand that what we did didn't work. We made the problem that nobody else saw even worse. Now, the people who didn't understand the problem back then, well, That's why they think it's been solved, because they still don't understand what the problem was. They just think that this collapse, you know, just happened out of left field. And oh, it just had to do with high real estate prices, not realizing how they got so high in the first place. And it was the debt that was the problem and the low interest rates. Uh, But so they don't know. They think the Fed solved the problem. They still don't realize that the Fed caused the financial crisis because the Fed inflated the housing bubble. And the Fed is in the process now of causing the next crisis which will be worse than the last one, right? And the fact that it's been four or five years, people say, oh, Peter's been predicting disaster for four or five years. I've been predicting disaster for a lot longer than that, including before the financial crisis. But when we had the financial crisis and we had the collapse, and instead of doing the right thing, which would have been even more short-term pain, instead of doing the right thing, we did QE1, 2, and 3. We put interest rates to zero. And yes, I have been critical of this for the past five years because I know it's going to end a disaster. Yes, we have inflated a bubble. We've had a big party and I'm the party pooper saying it's not going to last. It's not real. And yeah, I look like a fool, just like I did back then in the eyes of the mainstream until eventually it's all going to collapse. Now, I wonder when it happens, what are they going to say? You know, are they, going oh, bah, you know, stop clock, you know, not understanding, you know, that I was right all along. Just because it took too long doesn't mean I didn't understand what was going on. And just because the people that were blindsided by the last crisis, now they're blindsided again, doesn't mean they ever understood it from the beginning because they didn't. And of course, now we're also getting, you know, a lot of people talking about, the failures of capitalism, because they're looking at all this inequality, right? The wealth of the 1%. There's a story out now, uh, it's going around on the internet. They were talking about it on CNBC. I read about it on Zero Hedge. Paul Tudor Jones, uh, famous uh, hedge fund trader, you know, one of the legends, uh, coming out really saying, look, this is a mania, which I agree with. It's going to end a disaster. Talking about the stock market. But he's also being critical, you know, of uh, capitalism. He's saying, "Well, I defend it, but you know, it needs to be moral. It needs to be just, and right now it's not because people were putting profits before people." And and, and he's he's being very critical of this big wealth gap, but he's somehow blaming it on you know, the times, the, 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 the immorality of the modern day American capitalist, right? Because he's not saying, look, I, I'm not a socialist, right? Don't get me wrong. I like capitalism. It's just not working now. And so we got to fix it. And what Paul Tudor Jones doesn't acknowledge is it's not that capitalism isn't working. It's that we don't have capitalism. And so it can't work. We have socialism, Right. In capitalism, it is a market-based economy. And what it means is that the market sets prices and allocates resources. So everything is determined by all the buyers and sellers, the savers and the borrowers, the producers and the consumers. Everybody gets together in a marketplace, and we discover the price based on all the various supply and demand factors. Right? And we know that that works. We know what doesn't work is central planning. See, that's the opposite of a market-based economy. In a market-based economy, nobody tries to plan anything. It just happens automatically based on all the various, uh, uh, you know, participants in the market interacting voluntarily for their mutual benefit, right? But in a command economy, you get a group of people who get together and think they know better. Hey, we don't just want to leave everything up to chance. We're going to decide who produces what, who consumes what. What the price is going to be for that? What the price is going to be for this, right? That's a centrally planned economy. And it never works. It's always a disaster. Yet that is exactly what we have now. We have a centrally planned economy masquerading as a free economy. And that's why you have all these problems. That's why you have all this inequality. I mean, think about it. You've got Congress micromanaging industry through the tax code and through the regulatory code. They pick winners and losers. They decide who gets a subsidy and who pays a tax. Right. And they have all kinds of regulations that say this is the price that you could pay for that. Right. There's a minimum wage law, you know, uh, all kinds of mandates, all kinds of stuff that, that that that, you know, that screws up the market. And then they have they grant licenses to some companies to have monopolies. They inhibit competition. You know, they have all kinds of barriers to entry. They have all kinds of regulatory uh, burdens that come up the works and that force businesses to devote scarce resources just to keeping the regulators off their back. And so they become uncompetitive. Right. But a lot of it is based on what the government thinks. They give you a subsidy for buying a house. Uh, They give you a subsidy to go to college. Right. So they're distorting decisions that would normally be made. You know, because in the absence of some kind of government incentive, there may be a lot of people who are going to college who wouldn't go. Maybe there are a lot of people who buy houses just to get the deduction off their income tax. Right. If they didn't have that, maybe they'd make a better decision, a different decision. So with the government, you know, basically trying to you know, influence all the decisions, what that really is called is central planning. And the same thing at the Fed. The the Federal Reserve plans the the economy. They decide what what they think the money supply should be. Why should the Fed decide what the money supply should be? And then they decide what interest rates should be. They fix the price of money. The single most important price in a market economy is the price of money, because money is half of every transaction. And instead of letting the market set interest rates, they price fix it. So we have central banking, you know, central planning disguised as central banking. And of course, they are creating problems, huge problems. I mean, think about all of the problems that led to the 2008 financial crisis, right? That was the consequence of the Fed keeping interest rates too low for too long, really, between 2002 and and 2007, where for about a year and a half, they were at 1%. And then for, you know, a few years, they were, you know— still low. They weren't as low as one. They were one and a half, two, stuff like that. But the Fed kept interest rates too low for too long. And during that time period, lots of mistakes were made. And the culmination of those bad mistakes was 2008. Now, think about this, right? (laughs) What Yellen and Bernanke have done is off the charts compared to what uh, Greenspan did. I mean, that was child's play compared to what these guys have done, right? You're talking six years of zero, Not just one for a while and then one and a half, two. You're talking zero. And on top of that, three rounds of quantitative easing. Blowing out the balance sheet. Fed balance sheet at four and a half trillion. So the mistakes that we've made this time around dwarf the ones that we made last time. The economy is so much more screwed up now than it was. Which means the end game, the resolution, the culmination of that, the bursting of this enormous bubble is going to be so much worse than it was last time around. Is it any wonder that Janet Yellen doesn't want to pop it? That she doesn't want to put a pin anywhere near that bubble when it comes to raising interest rates? But it's going to burst on its own anyway. I mean, there's no way that they can vibe, defy this. I hear people say, you know, oh, we don't know how this experiment's going to end. You know, of course we do. It's going to end in ruin. I mean, history is littered with the ashes of nations that have fallen because they did what we're doing now. So it's not that we don't know how it's going to end. We just don't want to admit how it's going to end because we don't like the ending. Right. We're going to hope for some kind of miracle, even though there is no precedent for that. But, you know, one article that really takes the cake, you know, about this is this article in The Week by Jeff Spross. And this is the title of the article. What Elizabeth Warren should whisper in Janet Yellen's ear. Right. And this has got to be one of the stupidest articles that, that and that's, you know, and that's, you know, you've got to win a prize there because there's so many of them, you know. But the the point of this article is that uh, Warren should be counseling Janet Yellen about the need to have more inflation, that, you know, we can't just raise interest rates to try to fight inflation because inflation is something that hurts rich people, that what. The average guy, what poor people have to be worried about is unemployment, right? And so what we, we can't worry about inflation, that's been the problem. The Fed has been too preoccupied with inflation, and they should really be worried about employment. And so theoretically, we should have more inflation because in some way, that's going to help the Fed create jobs, which is pure nonsense. The idea that if we just had more inflation, because this guy in his article points out that inflation has been low over the past, you know, five or 10 years, Yet we would have all these problems as if the problems were the result of that low inflation. I mean, this is the this is the faulty logic that the left or, you know, most economists make. If inflation is low and then you have problems, they just blame the problems on that low inflation. But that's not true. That's 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 a false logic. I mean, just take logic 101. You just can't assume that two events that happen at the same time that one of them caused the other. You can't just assume that. There's no proof of that. And of course, part of the problem with all this low inflation is that it's really not as low as the numbers claim, because, you know, the CPI is not, in fact, honestly representing the inflation that a lot of Americans are experiencing, at least as it affects their cost of living. So it's not as low as this article would claim. But even if it were, that low inflation is not part of the problem. That low inflation is a a bright spot in an otherwise, you know, cloudy picture, I mean, if you're unemployed, the fact that prices are not rising eases your burden of being unemployed. It means your unemployment check goes further. Or if you you know, if you have a part-time job instead of a full-time job, the fact that you don't need as much money to buy stuff, that helps you out. I mean, forcing prices up just compounds the misery of the poor, or the middle class, or the unemployed or the downtrodden. I mean, this guy has it bass backwards to say that inflation hurts the rich. No, no, inflation helps the rich as long as they're levered up, right? Yeah, if you're rich and you're just sitting on a bond portfolio, if you've got all your money in muni bonds, yeah, inflation is going to hurt you. But how many really rich people have all their money in bonds? No, they're all levered up. They borrowed money and they bought stocks, right? They're making money off inflation or they bought real estate or they bought fine art or exotic cars or whatever it is they collect, the rich people are benefiting from inflation. The super rich are benefiting the most. You know, yes, the savers are hurting, but who are the savers? The middle class—they're saving. They got a pension. They got an annuity. They got a four hundred one k. They've got state insurance. You know, they—you know—they got a bank account. It's the average guy who's you know trying to save his money and getting screwed by inflation and low interest rates. It's the ultra rich that are levered up and speculating that are, you know, dancing all the way to the their, the banks. Right? It, so they, it's, it's he's, he's got it backwards. Meanwhile, if prices go up, you know, it's the poor people that get hit the most. If you're rich, what do you care if your grocery bill goes up? What, it doesn't matter to you. It doesn't matter. You know, you don't even know the grocery bill is going up because your maid does the shopping and your chef cooks the meal. And what do you, you don't even know what it costs. You don't even care. It's the average guy when his grocery bills are going up. That's the problem. And inflation undermines real economic growth. It undermines job creation. If inflation goes up and people can't afford to buy things, businesses slow down. They hire fewer people. More people are employed when prices are going down. Do you think more people work in the cell phone industry today than 10 years ago? Of course. Now, unfortunately, most of them are employed outside the United States, but that's a whole different problem. But in general, worldwide, more people are working Uh, in the cell phone industry than 10 years ago. And a lot more people are working in that industry than they were 20 years ago. Why? Because the price of cell phones came down. That's why. It's because the price came down that more people could buy. And because more people can buy, they need to make more phones. And because they need to make more phones, they got to hire more people. So falling prices create jobs. Not the other way around. If you force cell phone prices back up, what if all of a sudden the government said, you know, all this deflation is a bad thing. Let's, let's, let's eliminate it. Let's make cell phone companies charge the same price for their products that they charged 20 years ago. What would happen to all the workers in the cell phone industry? They'd all be unemployed because no one could afford the phones, right? So the whole industry would be killed if we tried to force back that old price structure. So this article is basically saying, look, we need to stop coddling the rich with inflation, uh, by fighting inflation. And we need to let inflation erode away the value of money. And somehow that's going to help the poor who count on that value, of that money the most, uh, because all they get is their paycheck. And, and, and then she tries to argue that, well, rich people like a lot of unemployment because then they can really screw the worker. Right. Because if they're really unemployed, well, they'll work for nothing. Right. I mean, this is like the socialist idea that, you know, but that is not the case. You know, yes, you know, if there is a lot of unemployed people for legitimate reasons, then wages would tend to be lower. Right. But prices are also going to be lower in that environment. But this is not somehow benefiting businesses that the government is creating a lot of a lot of unemployment through barriers that have been artificially imposed. I mean, a lot of these uh, businesses would like to hire people, but unfortunately, they can't do it because the government makes it uneconomical for them to do so. Either the wages that they're required to pay are too high or the risks of of assuming employment are too high because people don't want to expose themselves to lawsuits or government fines. There's all sorts of things that the government does. Uh, But this article is trying to blame this for this big dichotomy, you know, between the one percent and everybody else. It's everybody else is being enriched. Because the Fed is spending too much time fighting inflation, which is you know the opposite. They're creating inflation. And that's what's enriching the speculators at the expense of the people that this article supposedly is in support of, which is the average, the average guy. And that, again, was the point of Paul Tudor Jones trying to, you know, talking about this inequality, but, but trying to blame capitalism and not say, look, it is the Fed. It is the government that is doing all this. Under the guise of free markets, we have socialism and we're pretending it's capitalism, and then capitalism gets the blame for the problems of socialism. Look, we wouldn't even have these problems if we had capitalism. And if we want to solve them, we need to re-embrace capitalism and get rid of all the central planners and central bankers and go back to a free market. But that discussion uh, isn't even being had yet. And everybody thinks everything is so great. The key is going to be when it hits the fan this time, and it's way worse than it was in 2008, who are they going to blame? What are they going to blame? And are we finally going to try something different? And different meaning free market capitalism. And will, and will somebody finally you know, want to pay attention to the stuff that I've been saying? Again, I'm not the only one that says this. There are a lot of people out there that understand these problems. They don't necessarily articulate them in the media as often as I do. They're not out there, you know, on whatever, you know, cable TV outlet will, 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 will interview them. But they're at home. They're there. Uh, so I'm not, you know, some kind of super genius because I know this. You know, in fact, you don't have to be that smart in order to know it. You just have to be sensible, understand history, understand basic economics and just not be caught up in a gigantic bubble Uh, which unfortunately so many people are, they got all this, you know, Federal Reserve soap in their eyes. Uh, If they just wiped it away and just, you know, thought about it, clearly uh, they would understand this, too. But they're actually in denial. But the question is, after it all happens, you know, will people say, you know, I guess that Peter Schiff guy, I guess he was right after all. Maybe, maybe we should pay a little attention To what he has to say now, instead of going back to the same old sources, instead of going back to the central planners and central bankers, instead of asking Janet Yellen, okay, now what do we do? How do we fix this mess? Recognize that she doesn't know how to fix the mess. All she knows how to do is create it and make it bigger. And let's really go in a different direction.